You're listening to On The Way, a podcast for the Center for Bible Study. I'm your host, Max Botner. When you come to Save Through Childbearing, knowing who Artemis is and knowing in the time of Paul that she is the midwife. She's a goddess of midwifery. Mm -hmm. So people are going to her temple for two things. They're either when they're pregnant, which is the number one cause of death, by the way. Everybody knows somebody for, for women or yeah. for men, death uh, by birth for women. And so they're going to her temple. And our best guess is they're saying, either deliver me safely or kill me quickly with your euthanizing arrows. So it makes sense that Paul, as a pastor concerned for the welfare of his sheep that he's entrusted to Timothy, uh, wants to assure them that in the shadow of the goddess of midwifery, Jesus is stronger. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to the podcast. We've got another excellent episode for you today. My guest is Dr. Sandra Glan. She is professor of media arts and worship at Dallas Theological Seminary and the author of the new, excellent new book, Nobody's Mother, Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity and the New Testament. Uh, this is a, a really excellent uh, in-depth historical analysis of the goddess Artemis and her refer um, her importance for study of the New Testament. Dr. Glan, part of her story comes out of uh, trying to make sense of First Timothy two fifteen and what it means that she or the woman will be saved through childbearing. What are the implications there? What is Paul saying, and really, what is he saying in that whole passage? There, we get into it, so we have a good conversation about that. It's always a uh, a tricky but important text to work through. Uh, if you're new to this channel, please do make sure to subscribe. We'd appreciate that. Uh, if you'd like and comment, that would be fantastic as well. And definitely turn on your notifications so you get all of our future content. We are a nonprofit uh, group uh, that does ministry um, both digitally in these spaces and we we have on-ground classes uh, that are also joined by people online constantly. Um, we're trying to make high-quality biblical scholarship available. And so if you're interested in supporting us at all, um, you can uh, become a member of the Center for Bible Study for as little or as much as you'd like. Uh, any monthly recurring donation makes you a member of the Center. What that does is you'll get access to all of our past classes that we've taught. I just finished a four-week class on biblical interpretation. We're teaching another four-week class on the Gospel of Mark coming up shortly. Um, so we've, we've got all, all the past classes that you get access to, and you get entrance into all the future classes as well. There are other perks if you're interested. So you can follow the link in the description there. There's link to become a member. There's also links to all of Dr. Glan's books. I encourage you to check those out. And with that, let's go ahead and jump into our conversation with Dr. Glan. Welcome, everybody, back to the podcast. I am uh, so delighted here to have uh, my guest, Dr. Sandra Glan, uh, with me. We are going to be discussing her book, Nobody's Mother, fantastic new study of the context of Artemis of Ephesus and why it matters really? for That's interpreting uh, the New Testament. Well, it's true. It's true. And uh, we'll be talking about some of her other works as well. She's just done a lot of really wonderful scholarship and is continuing to do so. I saw you have two new, I think, two new contracts with IVP on the way. Uh, the ad came out. So Maybe they, a sign of mental, I don't know. Perhaps, right? Yeah, we, we sign up for these things and then we were like, why did we do that? Um, but thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us, Dr. Galan. It's a really, really a treat. Yeah. 
so just to begin, could you give us a little bit of your background, um, your faith journey and your path to biblical studies? It's something that I know you touch on a little bit in the opening of the book, and I think it's something the audience would really connect with. Oh, thank you. Well, I had this mother who, if you've seen Sound of Music, whether Carrie Underwood's version or, you know, Julie Andrews's, she, my mother was very much like that. It was just wonderful. And I'm the fourth of five kids. So I had one vision for my vocation, and that was motherhood. Hmm. Married my high school sweetheart, great guy. We've been together for 45 years now. But when we hit the brick wall of infertility and pregnancy loss, it was an absolutely stunning shock to me. It wasn't just an ethical, you know, bioethical, financial, marital, all of that challenge. Uh, it at its core for me, it was a spiritual crisis because I had no vision for what it looked like to be a Christian woman who wasn't married with kids. And uh, that sent me on a journey to figure out how did I get there? <laughs> what, what did my little vision of the world do for single women? And then I would learn church history and go, the early church was really into celibacy. Where did I get this idea that the nuclear family was certainly it's God ordained and it's blessed, but it's not the only calling for a woman. Mm. And a big key to that is how we read the little enigmatic phrase in first Timothy, she will be saved through childbearing. And in my early days as a Christian, I was taught that that's what it was saying, that not that I would go to heaven based on having babies, but it's kind of close actually, mm. <laughs> that this was yeah. the one vision. And so that began for me a long, long journey of exploring, well, what does that mean? And uh, my husband decided to pursue pastoral ministries. I went to Bible college thinking I'm going to be the perfect you know, pastor's wife for him. But in the process, I'm getting my own spiritual life. I'm seeing the text for myself. Uh, I put him through seminary and he's done with seminary and I'm you know, teaching all this time going through infertility treatment. It spanned a decade mm. for us. And I'm teaching a women's Bible study in my church. And this is before the internet. So I'm kind of isolated at home now. I, you know, I have a freelance writing business. And mm. so I start seminary. I don't think women should get seminary degrees at this point in my life. This mm. is my mentality at the time. But I'm going to class, taking one class at a time just to get out of the house. And uh, interact with other people because I'm teaching a Bible study at at church. And as it turns out, if you do that long enough, you have a degree. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, I'm kind of kind of being a little facetious, but but in the process, my professors knew that this was usually the term project I was focusing on was this question. Whether I'm in Genesis doing exegesis in you know Hebrew, whether I'm looking at Luke in the New Testament, I am exploring this journey of where did we get where did we go wrong on our messaging for women here, and what does the Bible actually say? That, that's that's kind of a really short yeah. version. You know, you as you well know, it's in the intro to Nobody's Mother, and really sets up that journey of why first Timothy and why this enigmatic phrase, which mm -hmm. is really the subject of the book and why Artemis is important. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. And uh, a really cool insight. I, I think a lot of the best scholarship actually comes out of personal narrative. Um, mm. I, 
I had a, a friend of mine, he had a different PhD advisor, a guy I really, really re respect a lot. And I remember when he was wrestling with what to write for his dissertation, he said something to his advisor, like, well, I don't have a theological dog in this fight or whatever, kind of like I'm neutral. And he looked, his advisor looked back at him and he said, well, you should. <laughs> and uh, I, I just think well, I like and it, the, the point wasn't like, hey, we should just be biased and enforce, you know, everything on the tech, but, but that most of actually the best scholarship care. comes yeah. out of a place of really caring. Yes, yes, exactly. Then you put in checks and balances to make sure that your bias isn't driving it. And that's where you get right. betting and all of that. But I think on the one hand, it's it uh, it's dangerous when you come to a text with your own personal story. Um, but it's also dangerous to come to the text without any sense of anyone's personal story. I think that's mm -hmm. why we need each other. Mm -hmm. We need men and women. We need Americans mm -hmm. and Africans, and we need dead Christians and living Christians. Like mm -hmm. this is why we need community. Yeah. And I think there's been a tendency to think, well, if somebody is approaching a topic from their story as a starting place, that that makes them suspect. But mm -hmm. it's just as true that the opposite is the case. And I'll give you an example. I remember yeah. sitting in a Sunday school class while I was wrestling with bioethical issues relating to in vitro. Mm -hmm. And uh, the teacher who had not been through any of this said, well, you know, just if you just look at the price of in vitro, it's just not good stewardship. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, okay, but because I'm in this and I know we have unexplained infertility, I know that it's more than just a price tag of getting a child. I want to know what's medically wrong and does it need to be fixed because infertility is a symptom of something else. It's not like an end diagnosis. And that was a great example that sort of solidified in my head why you have to have both. We mm. needed him as a scholar on bioethics, but we needed somebody who was actually living in it to have some questions brought that you might not think of if you hadn't yeah. actually lived in the situation. Oh, that's a great example. Yeah. Um, on, on page 14 of the book, you write this. I think it's a helpful uh, kind of starting point to talk about your approach to the, the historical question. Um, you say, this book is for the reader who wants to avoid sacrificing a high view of scripture while working to reconcile conflicting narratives about God's view of women. So I'm wondering, like, what sort of approach or approaches to Paul's language about women do you have in mind that you might think do sacrifice a high view of scripture? And how do you want your yeah. approach to differ there? So one is, well, Paul's just a misogynist when he's saying, you know, uh, save through childbearing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One is that, well, Paul, bless his little heart, he just had an undeveloped view of men and women, but were more enlightened. Neither of you, neither of which I think is very charitable to Paul. He's a brilliant scholar, mm -hmm. like, just brilliant. If you look at Romans from start to finish, you're like, eh. And then if you think about maybe time in Arabia before he actually started teaching, I'm thinking he knew Genesis 1 through 3 pretty well and had a really deeply rooted view of gender. And if you look at Romans 12, that is his actual practice in all his greetings and the women he's greeting and the different kinds of relationships, you know, you've got benefactor and one is like a mom and coworker. And so Paul's, you know, boots on the ground approach to women is has to be added to his words on the paper. Mm. And then there are some who say, well, that's not actually Pauline teaching at all. It's just some person who came along, you know, a hundred years later and they, right. a, a later they author. Okay. Yeah. 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 Which I, you know, not everybody who has a low view of scripture thinks that, but, but I think that the reasons sometimes given are like Paul's different vocabulary. We can totally account for that without putting somebody else behind the pen in a different century. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's helpful. Yeah, so they, you just listed off a, a number of really common um, 
angles on Paul in scholarship, right? Uh, that's, yeah, that he's a man of his time and therefore we should expect him to be a misogynist. So whatever, or maybe he has some, like a nucleus of an egalitarian strand there, but it's underdeveloped or yeah, or, or it wasn't Paul. And so your approach is, your approach is different than that. Um, what, what are your assumptions as you're reading Paul? So as I dug, um, and, and part of how I came to the text was assuming Paul is smart and Paul's not contradicting himself. So for example, if you're, if you're looking at first Corinthians 11, when he talks about women praying and prophesying, and in first Corinthians 14, he talks about women being silent. I don't, I think Paul's too smart to contradict himself within through chapter, you know, three chapters. Right. So I'm going to assume that maybe we've misunderstand, misunderstood what he meant by silence. Um, and so I, I think that the evidence suggested that Paul has, and, and Romans 16, that Paul has a positive view of women and he's partnering with women. Mm -hmm. And when he writes in the beginning of his letter to the Philippians and he's talking about their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, well, who was there on the first day? It was the women mm -hmm. at the prayer mm -hmm. meeting. And Paul didn't say, oh dear, it's the women meeting. I'm going to have to go find some, you know, Jewish guys to meet with. No. He, he plants a church with the women that are gathering for prayer. So I'm assuming Paul has a high view of women and he has a pretty developed view of gender. Mm -hmm. And then the more I dug into the, the first century backgrounds and the inscriptions, the more I really felt like even the language that he used was consistent with one, somebody who's writing a personal letter, Timothy, who might know him well, as opposed to the Romans, which are people he's never met. Mm -hmm. There are things that I would explain uh, if I were writing to people I had never met versus somebody who'd been my ministry partner for years and years, right? Uh, that can account for some of it. I think some of it can be accounted for by the fact that he is writing to a context where you have this goddess who is all over the inscriptions at the mm. time of the earliest Christians. She's just dominating. But actually, where do we get that? We don't just get that from the inscriptions. It, our jumping off point of that is Luke. Because he's writing in Acts 19 about the magic workers and then the Artemis worshippers. So he's the one who told us we kind of got kicked out of the synagogue. Mm -hmm. And so that tells us there are both Jewish Christians in the early church and the magic burning tells you there are Gentile Christians in the early church or else Jewish people that were really into magic, which is real sketchy. Um, and the, the fact that he is an apostle of the Gentiles, all that suggests there's a there's a good chance that there are Jews and Gentiles in this church. And sometimes scholars look at just First Timothy without looking beyond it and say, yeah, it's just all Jewish influences here. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Yeah, it's it, you're right. Acts is the one God that really Paul comes into direct conflict with that's named uh, is Artemis. Uh, and, and he never uh, says her name like a good Jew. Yeah, I, don't, yeah. I think Luke was probably <laughs> Gentile. Where there's some debate, but Luke in a number of different places in Luke Acts will say the names of gods. You know, yeah, they thought, yeah, I thought he was yeah. Hermes. Paul, yeah. you will never see him write the, you know, ascribe whatever, but yeah. utter the name of a, uh, another god. And so yeah. I think he's going to say things like, you know, the fiery arrows. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a goddess that's toting around a quiver and a bow and arrow. He doesn't have to say her name. Be like right. me saying kryptonite and people would know exactly which superhero I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, that's good. That's a really good point. Yeah. So, okay, so we're, we're talking Artemis then. I, I guess uh, it's maybe obvious to somebody, or maybe not, who's been in the New Testament a bit, 
like why Artemis might be interesting. But for most, for most people, I think for most people, you yeah. know, sitting in church or who maybe have interest in, in Christianity, they might wonder like, oh, wow, why write a book about Artemis of Ephesus? What makes her, yeah. what makes her so important for New Testament interpretation outside of Acts 18? If you're trying to solve the enigmatic phrase, save your childbearing, what in the right. world does... Yeah, because yeah, not, not mentioned there. Right. In fact, I was... Yeah. I was talking with a group of, of young uh, Christian leaders that it was like a school of ministry in my area. They had asked me to come out and speak about women in ministry. And so, of course, one of the passages we talk about at some point is the, the first Timothy passage. And I was talking to them about, you know, where some cultural codes or cues that maybe point to uh, an Artemis background. And the question that one student asked me, I think kind of skeptically, well, why doesn't Paul just come out and say it, right? That, that this is what he's yeah. talking about. So this is your area, right? So yeah, I think two reasons. Number one, Timothy, if Timothy's been side by side with him, and the last thing that happened to Paul before he left Ephesus was the big brouhaha of people chanting in the theater for two hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. He's already planning to leave for Macedonia and just speeds up the timeline and is out of there. It's not safe. Mm. And so that would be the last thing on his mind as he's writing back to Timothy. And he says, I've left you in Ephesus to teach certain people not to teach false doctrine. I don't think he had to tell Timothy what false doctrine we're talking about. They had just lived through it all. Mm. So it, I get the Artemis as the background by beginning in, as I mentioned, Luke, uh, Acts 19, written by Luke. I sometimes accidentally say Luke 19 because Luke wrote it. And that's why I it's, keep talking about Luke. It's part Luke, two. Part two of Luke. Yeah. That's right. Part two, the sequel. Um, he he has given us a lot of detail about what is, if you'll pardon the, the anachronistic uh, reference to the religious context in Ephesus. You really can't suss out religion uh, and cult of religion in this city. Uh it's like talking about the freedom in America as if, you know, that's that's not in our DNA. Mm -hmm. um, so Paul is confronted by these silver workers who are yelling great as Artemis of the Ephesians in this, in this story as Luke reports it. And, and he says they have not blasphemed the goddess. And I'm thinking, yeah, they haven't said her name. They've mm -hmm. just said things like, God's made with hands, mm -hmm. wink, wink, right? Because <laughs> there are statues in the temple, but it's a brilliant missiological move. But that is the main place I'm getting my clues for what could be going on in the background. But also the magic workers are described earlier in the same passage in Acts. And for years, I didn't make the connection of magic workers and their lingo showing up in the pastoral epistles. But when you have that reference, which, again, appears to be misogynistic when Paul talks about women being gossips and busybodies, um, probably better translated, you know, speakers of nonsense. And it's, it's a cognate or the form of the, one of the very words used for magic workers in Acts 19. Mm. It's a magic-y word. Mm. So something that was happening with magic uh, is also showing up in 1 Timothy. and. But also, when you come to save through childbearing, knowing who Artemis is and knowing in the time of Paul that she is a midwife, she's a goddess of midwifery. So people are going to her temple for two things or either when they're pregnant, which is the number one cause of death, by the way. Everybody knows somebody for, for women or yeah. for men, death uh, by birth for women. And so they're going to her temple. And our best guess is they're saying, 
either deliver me safely or kill me quickly with your euthanizing arrows. There are all, there's all kinds of inscriptions and literary backgrounds that suggest that her arrows were connected with pain-free euthanizing. Her own mother is said to have had a pain-free delivery because Artemis had that ability, mm-hmm. it was believed. So it makes sense that Paul, as a pastor concerned for the welfare of his sheep that he's entrusted to Timothy, uh, wants to assure them that in the shadow of the goddess of midwifery, Jesus is stronger. Mm-hmm. And this is my conclusion was that this is limited application. I don't think that he's telling all women they won't die in childbirth. Lots of women uh, through the centuries have died in childbirth. I don't even think he's telling all first century Christians they won't die in childbirth. I think in the same way that in Acts 19, you have People just touching, Paul touches a cloak, they bring a cloak to him or they bring a handkerchief to him and people are healed. And this makes the magic workers burn their books. Mm -hmm. I think in the same way that Paul's doing miraculous healings in a very localized situation to prove that Jesus is stronger than magic and its effect on the gospel, I think he's doing the same thing with the goddess of midwifery and the women in the congregation when it comes to Artemis. I think it's a limited application. It's written in a personal letter to Timothy. It has great application for us for missions and to be looking at strongholds in cultures, then that Jesus is stronger than all the strongholds. Hmm. And different cultures are going to have different strongholds. Maybe in America, it's sex and greed. (laughs) Not in that order. I don't know, right? right? But Jesus is better. Jesus is stronger. And that Paul, as a good pastor, and a shepherd is concerned for yeah. what is going to concern them. No, it's really good. Yeah. I have more questions about the exegesis of that whole text too, which we can come back to, but maybe could we just go back a little bit? Um, Cause you spend a lot of time in the book uh, unpacking who Artemis is culturally in Paul's world. And uh, I mean, you talked about her as a midwife, but you also, uh, you also correct some misconceptions that people had, um, namely that she was a fertility goddess and nurturing and yeah. And, and uh, many people, if they've seen a picture of her, they've seen that one where a lot of people assume she's like many breasted. And so that's kind of fertility. So maybe could you unpack a little bit more about just what you find in the book and what others have, have argued in terms of who she is in that culture. Yeah. Yeah. So we're trying to solve for X and X is who is Artemis, not just who is Artemis, but who is Artemis at the time of the early, earliest Christians in Ephesus. Because if you get a synoptic Artemis, you can go back, you know, you can have 11 centuries worth of Artemis in different locations with different names. Mm-hmm. And then you I mean, you have Diana in the same city. It's the same woman in the same way. I like to liken it to the Statue of Liberty. You know, the France gave us a Statue of Liberty. It's Lady Liberty enlightening the world. And they have their own version of her in Paris. But only one of those two is connected with immigration. Mm. Same goddess, same statue, but in one locale, she takes on a local flavor. And the same thing is happening with Artemis. So I had to know who is she at the time of the earliest Christians and how am I going to narrow that down? So I began with the ancient stories. I began with Homer, you know, 10 centuries earlier. I began by looking at different writings in the literature, but then I fast forwarded to the time of the earliest Christian. And we look at who are the literary, what are the literary sources saying about her in Ephesus now? What do the inscriptions in Ephesus say about her here now? And just narrow it down to about a hundred year period, the two first centuries. 
And what emerges is Artemis in Ephesus is a goddess of midwifery. Everywhere she's carrying a bow and arrow. And even in the temple in Ephesus, you have both statues. You have the statue of the young, beautiful maiden with a short skirt so she can hunt, flanked often by a deer or dogs uh, with a bow and arrow. She's, you know, she's got a quiver. Sometimes she's reaching back for a bow. But also you have that bizarre looking creature with bulbous appendages all over her and she's got a bee on her side and she's got, looks like bulls that look like they're in trauma. And what does all of that mean? And it's the same goddess. It's just a very different manifestation. The analogy I like to give on that is like, there are a thousand versions of Barbie. It's all the same Barbie, but in mm. different places and different cultures, she looks different, but she still has the same backstory. She's still from Mattel. So that's, uh, a strange thing going on with that manifestation of the visual picture because we don't really have a good parallel. Maybe we do in that if you go to the to um, to Nazareth and the Church of the Incarnation or the Annunciation, Church, one of those two. I'm gonna mix it up. Anyway, what they did when they were building the church modernly is they asked different countries from all over the world to send a Madonna and child in art from their country. So you have a Bolivian looking mother and child. You have America looks like Metallica and child. You have, you know, in Greece, you have the very traditional iconography of mother and child. And it, you can take a little trip around the world and people, the mother and child, the Madonna and, and baby looking a very different ethnicities mm -hmm. and nationalities. And so you get these local manifestations of the same story. You see something similar maybe in the Virgin of Guadalupe, which is not the Virgin of Dallas. Right? Uh, and so they, they have these different manifestations of Artemis. Who is she at the time of the earliest Christians? In Ephesus, best we can tell from all the data that we narrow down. Goddess of midwifery. Mm -hmm. Those bulbous appendages are not breasts. They are probably Hittite sacks that are related to magic mm -hmm. and that they are missing some essential detail for feeding children, namely nipples. They look more like eggs or like the opposite of, of a honeycomb. Like what, what would it look like if you pulled the wax out and it retained its shape? She often does have a honeycomb at her feet because the bee is the uh, mascot of the city of Ephesus. That's oh, really fascinating. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, so how would you say... Um... Oh, I guess one other facet to this uh, picture I'd love for you to fill in for us before we return back to the Timothy text is um, the role of female priestesses in the Artemis cult and also the um, the mythology of, of um, her relationship to her brother and... Um, okay. Coming first yeah, yeah. and how that might yeah. be interesting. Oh, and, yeah, good uh, point. Yes. And um, I forget, what was the name of the, oh, the Amazon women as well that were connected yes. to her. Huge so, yeah. connection. Like if you go to Ephesus today, which I, I imagine some of your listeners and viewers have done, you will see the Amazon story in stone at approximately, again, the time of the earliest Christians, the stories being told, there was a huge connection to the Amazon women and Artemis. And if you Google like the Smithsonian or National Geographic, you will see that graves have been found in what we today call the country of Georgia, um, that says these were not mythological, actually. Mm, these were yeah. real warrior women. And so they had a strong connection to Artemis, as you can imagine. She's the perfect, you know, mascot for them. She's carrying a bow and arrow and she's a hunter. And one of the myths I wanted to lay to rest is that she's a man hater. She is not a man hater. She is a confirmed virgin. 
Um, but if you, one of the things the inscriptions show us, and even a reference in the book of Titus in the New Testament, you will find men's names that are derivatives of hers. Mm. Artemis is one of Paul's colleagues. And in the inscriptions, you would find men and women are naming their children, boys and girls, after Artemis. And if you think about the silver workers that Luke describes, those are male silver workers. This is not just a girl cult. Mm. However, it looks like those with access in the inner courts of the temple are probably sexually inactive women. Mm -hmm. And there is a huge uh, connection to wealth. The city is, and, and there are lots of references to wealth in First Timothy. Um, and the best analogy I can think of that is if you have a junior league or you have cotillion, you have the wealthy women of the town. And this is a world where taxes Municipal bonds are not paying for the gymnasium. Somebody is mm -hmm. paying for it and getting their name in very big letters. So one of the biggest things you find in inscriptions is the name of whoever had something built. Mm -hmm. It's not that different from uh, at, at the school where I teach. We have a brick walk and the donors mm -hmm. can pay to honor their children or their wives or themselves. Same thing. It's the same thing today. Yeah. I, I just moved back yeah. to California. I'd been living in Grand Rapids for okay. uh, for a few years and um there's uh just a couple dutch names that are plastered over everywhere in the city and it speaks pretty loudly to whose city it is you know yes so you have this you could say girl power but i think that was really misunderstood because then it was applied to paul and it was saying that paul's fighting this sort of feminazi mentality that's not what's happening uh in the city at all it wasn't men against women but it does it there is a possibility that there was sort of a pride of firstborn, and that could come from, so Homer begins the story, uh, as the story is told, uh, Zeus, the big daddy god, cheats on his wife, Hera, with Leto. Leto conceives twins. She flies all over the empire looking for a, place, a friendly place to land, and nobody wants to allow her because they don't want to cross the angry wife. Mm -hmm. But eventually she finds a grove of trees called Ortigia near Ephesus. And she gives birth to Artemis. Artemis is born first. And so she's the firstborn. And you see first as part of her name. First throne is one of her names in the inscriptions in Ephesus. Protoss. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me that so then she watches her mother ride for nine days, giving birth to Apollo. And the how long mama rides is different according to different literary sources. But in general, it's a really long time. And she says, there is no way I am ever going through that. Now, they're not born. Gods and goddesses aren't born as little cherubs or little babies. They're born like little bonsais where they're fully mature. They're just tiny, but they have full use of their faculties. Artemis goes to her dad, sits on his lap, stroke his, strokes his beard, which is the equivalent of batting your eye, eyes at him and, you know, wrapping him around your finger. Says, Daddy, make me immune to Aphrodite's arrows. I don't want anything to do with sexual children. Hmm. And he says, granted. And I looked for one inscription with the name Apollo anywhere in the city. I, I found nothing. It's like he is erased from the memory of the city. Hmm. His city is Delos. How... How Delos is claiming that the twins were born there, I don't know. They're claiming it too. But all of that to say, this is Artemis' city. This is not her brother. And she is the first. And if you know twins, you know that that's the first question a lot of people still yeah, ask. Yeah, that's today. true. That is Which true. You first? Who cares? Like, we're talking to 15 minutes. But yeah. there's something about being first. So I suspect 
that Paul is looking at this firstborn creation myth and the status that comes with it. And it's not that he's putting down women. It's that he's elevating men Mm -hmm. to uh, a place of equality with women in a city where the firstborn. And he's saying, actually, in the true story, Adam was first. Mm -hmm. Not only that, the the woman was deceived. I don't think he's saying that uh, this is a prototype of all women being deceived. Because over in 2 Corinthians, he says to the church, I'm concerned that all of you, like Eve, will be deceived. It's a human thing to be Mm -hmm. deceived by the evil one. So it would explain, whereas maybe a midrash where Paul is borrowing the outline from the true origin story, and he's kicking, kicking at, throwing serious shade on the local origin story without getting in trouble or getting called a blasphemer. No, that's really good. Yeah, I, I've talked to a lot of people about the the Timothy text, and oftentimes they can be uh, uh, persuaded. I mean, just by the evidence about the language of not teaching and, and so forth, um, what might be going on there and the issue with the word of authority. We could talk about that in a minute and, and all that. But then they, they, they come back as, well, then why does he ground it in, you know, the creation story? Um, as if the assumption is like that. Uh, it's been true since the beginning. Yes. Yeah, before and, the fall. and rootish yeah, and therefore the ideal, is, right? is subjugation of uh, women to men. And uh, I think a lot of, so recognizing that there's a a, a very good, you know, at least culturally plausible account for the entire passage with Artemis in the background, I think is really helpful. In other words, you're not just picking and choosing like select places of the passage where maybe it fits, but the entire logic of the argument can plausibly be explained in this way. And I think that, I think that's really helpful. He is giving it as a reasoning for limiting women uh, in this context. And it's so often um, those who see it as rooted in creation, we're still not going on to deal with, okay, but what does it mean to be saved through childbearing? Because right. you don't believe people go to heaven by that. And so, but also you don't really believe that the nuclear family is the only way a woman can use the gift of teaching because, you know, Anna in the temple is prophesying as a widow for a very long time. Yeah. Why is the point made of Philip having prophesying daughters? Well, but mm. even more essential, why do you have men and women, old, young, slave-free, Jew, Gentile, prophesying at Pentecost and not as a sign of male failure? It's a sign that the Holy Spirit is here. Mm-hmm. And prophecy, whatever you want to make it, is opening your mouth publicly. Yeah, it's teaching. Well, we'll like, there's no way around There's no way around it. You have I, to reconcile all of that. You have to reconcile that. Yeah, yeah. I, I like to put up, there's a... a a list of uh, of gifts that Paul mentions in Ephesians, um, I think it's three, maybe four, where after Christ has ascended on highs, this is a citation of Psalm sixty nine. Yeah. Um, he gives he gives gifts, and the gift that that passage is a little bit unique because oftentimes Paul talks about us having different gifts, but in that passage, the gifts are actually the people themselves. Right. It's like the, the spoils of the king are the yeah. the different gifts he gives to the church, and there's apostles and prophets and you go down the list and um then then there's one of the list one of them is teacher right which people today might 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 argue well women can't do that they can't teach but what's funny about it to me is that you can point to examples in the new testament where paul calls women all of those other things on that list apostle prophet and so on and so forth so uh 
for for Paul, I don't think anybody could make an argument that teaching is above apostle or pro- prophet or you know these things. So it just doesn't hold. It doesn't really he make actually sense. ranks them in First Corinthians fourteen. Right. So, yeah. I mean, it doesn't really yeah. make sense, right? To we, again back to your point about consistency. Uh, if we're trying to t- take Paul to be a consistent thinker and a clear thinker, a lot of this stuff just starts to add up, and it's difficult to make sense of with some of the paradigms we. Um, could you then maybe just take us through, just kind of briefly walk through your understanding of the the Timothy text, maybe even beginning with um, what's said about the attire of women and what Paul's doing there and yeah. how he moves from that to then saying, you know, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man to just all the way through just any thoughts you have. Uh, on that. Yeah, why okay. not? Let me preface it by saying the main thing I wanted people to take away from my work in this book was not what I think are the ramifications for First Timothy, actually, other than, say, through childbearing. I wanted us to stop embarrassing ourselves by calling Artemis a fertility goddess when historians <laughs> know this is not yeah. actually the case at all. And I mean, yeah, and to, be, to be fair, it is yeah. mostly a historical uh, treatment of Artemis, right? And yeah. situating yes, that. That's book, most of the book. Yes, correct. yes, yes. Correct. And and who in the world was she at the time of the earliest Christians? And so I, you know, I start my ramifications section with just to be clear, like uh, the main thing I was trying to show is who is she. But sure, I'll take a stab at interpretation. But that's not what I spent the last twenty five years on. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. Um, I spent some time on it. I spent some years on it, but not not the quarter of a century that I spent on the other side. So Paul begins the passage actually talking to the men or husbands, and mm-hmm. in the Greek, the word for husband is the same word as for man, mm-hmm. and the word for woman is the same word as for wife. And so it's an interpretive question as to whether he's addressing husbands and wives, mm-hmm. or he's addressing men and women. And that has huge ramifications for how we read, let the women keep silent in the church, or let the wives keep silent and let ask them their husbands at home. And a woman with a husband at home is wife, right? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. over in Corinthians. But mm-hmm. that's just an example of the kind of interpretive questions we have to ask and wrestle with. So it be, it helps to begin by knowing that every translation is an interpretation. And that's not because of, of malice. It, it's because you have to make those decisions when you're mm-hmm. rendering one language to another. So the first thing we're going to ask is, is Paul talking to men or husbands? And then later, is he talking to women or wives? That has very different ramifications for how we read it. Mm-hmm. The husbands, I, I take it as husbands, so we're, mm-hmm. we'll go that way. Okay. Uh, they're angry about something. And Paul is telling them to settle down and stop being angry. And that very often gets left out of the teaching on this passage. We go straight for what Paul is saying to the women, but it appears that there's some conflict happening between either men and women or husbands and wives wives in public setting. And I I don't think that Paul is saying men are more given to anger than women are. Mm-hmm. I think it manifests itself differently. And for the same reason, I don't think we should say women are more easily deceived than men are. Paul yeah. is do giving some sex specific commands in this context, but that is not, I don't think we should extrapolate both of those two. If we did, about. we would have to say only men should pray, right? Lifting up holy hands. So women, no praying, no lifting up your hands when yeah. you pray. Common <laughs> problems with 1 Corinthians 11, where they're going to pray and prophesy. Yeah. Yes. Uh, all kinds of issues. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So then he gets to talking about how he wants the women to act and he wants them to, he's talking about the way that they dress. 
And this section has been really, I think, badly abused in purity culture. Mm. Purity is a good thing. Purity culture is not a good thing. Mm. If you don't know the difference, Google it. There's all kinds of great resources. So Paul is not saying women are uh, too sexually seductive in public. I don't think that's what he's saying. Certainly Paul would be against that. Yeah. But when he talks about how he wants them to be modest, mm. it's the same way I think that we use the word he lives in a modest home. Mm-hmm. She drives a modest car because he then spells out what kind of modesty he means. And mm-hmm. he's like, not gold, not pearls, not expensive apparel. Uh, he doesn't say sexy apparel. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And pearls, you're, you're in a harbor city. Pearls are much more common. Uh, and actually, there's no such thing as fake pearls right like uh, maybe maybe a smoky glass but you just don't walk into walmart and pick up a bunch of costume jewelry if you're wearing pearls in your hair you're filthy rich Mm -hmm. and a lot of times even the men wanted their wives to flaunt it because it honored it's a a sign of status for the whole family yeah absolutely drive the bmw to church please right because it makes me look good yeah and so i think in that section paul is saying Leave your emblems of class behind and let your emblems of class be your good works. What you are wearing is the apparel of Christ. And if that's an obstacle for other people, your wealth, then get rid of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or certainly don't bring it to a public space where it's Mm -hmm. going to, this this is the fellowship of the equal, right? Mm -hmm. You're, You're not slave. I mean, you're slave and free. You're male and female. You're Jew and Gentile. And all of those, sure, you're still those things, but you're you're not separating by those in public. So, mm-hmm. That's uh, good. so yeah. again, I, Paul gets a bad rap here because people are like, you know, Paul's policing what women can wear with a ruler. And right. I think we've misunderstood completely his heart there. Yeah, that's really helpful. And just to your point, also, it's a great connection to James chapter two, where James says, yes. you know, do not yeah. hold the faith in prosopolemsia, yeah. in, in partiality. Um, how how would someone know if a person is rich or of high status when they walk into the assembly versus poor, if not for the what they're wearing, right? Um, or so, their hair would be braided. Or their hair, or their but... style of hair, right? So, yeah. Slave is, labor. Right? Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. So that it makes sense. You're working sense. in the field, you aren't braiding your hair. That's mm-hmm. in this context. Uh, in this context, that means that you have leisure time mm-hmm. and you have somebody else to serve you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've probably seen some of the statues where people have their hair, you know, 14 inches high and it's mm-hmm. it's curled and it's coiffed and it's, you know, yeah. it's a sign of status. Yeah. Yeah. Leave it at home. Don't yeah. let that your sign of status is Christ. Yeah. That is your calling card here. So he talks about um, his practice. Then he says, not I per- permit a woman either to teach or have authority over it. And it could be husband or a man. So let's begin with, I'm not permitting. I think too much is made of the present tense and permitting. Um, But when you combine it with the first person, then you go, okay, Paul's saying this is his practice. He's not permitting this. That's different from saying you shouldn't, the church shouldn't, a woman should not. And sometimes it even gets taught as a woman shouldn't teach us. Not what Paul said. He said, I'm not. of permitting. And then the question is, what does it mean to teach and have authority? Is it teach in such a way as to usurp authority? Mm-hmm. Or so is it two things or, or is he using it like you or I might say, I'm sick and tired and it doesn't mean you're ill or you're weary. It means you're, <laughs> well, right. it doesn't mean you're weary, right? But 
But so it could be a, a figure of speech for teaching such a way as to have authority or usurp authority. The KJV translates it usurp authority. This mm-hmm. isn't like a new feminist version right. of this interpretation. So the, the <laughs> verb for people that are interested is authentao. And it's this is it's a little bit tricky because this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. So we have to look elsewhere for you know usages of it. And the context in which it's used is is, is very um alarming. It's violent language that's violent. It's connected to murder and rape and suggests some kind of, I don't know, it doesn't su- suggest a kind of mundane authority. Paul uses other terms for authority all the time. So it, it is, it is yeah. a red flag a little bit. And some have pushed back and said, well, you have the verb to teach, didasco, along with it. Uh, so what's the connection between the two? Does, does didasco being next to it inevitably therefore transform it into a usage of the term that's more kind of mundane, which is how some uh, some complementarians, I think, have tried to frame it. Um, uh, Linda Belleville has, has argued, well, actually, when you take this with didasco, it's shaping the kind of didascoing going on, uh, <laughs> a kind of vi- like of usurping authority. So this is just part of the debate right now about yeah. exactly how we make sense of this, but. There is a debate over literally every single word. Yeah, it's it's true. Yeah. So to teach or to have authority, he's he's using actually the infinitive form. And so big question there is, is it one thing or two things? Could one be positive and one be negative? Some have argued that that doesn't happen. I was reading the book of Revelation in the Greek, not trying to show off. I'm just saying last week I saw them used this way where one's a negative, one's a positive in the same sentence. So, uh, it, the challenge is where does he get this word authentane to mm-hmm. to to authority to it, you know the beginning of that word is uh i i liken to autonomy mm-hmm. it it could be the same root and i suspect paul's more concerned not with hierarchy but with autonomy and independence here mm-hmm. and it very well could be an artemis word this could be like kryptonite to to which is why it's such a rare word and and why we have trouble finding it. But Paul, yeah, as you said, the word for authority is all over the New Testament. Mm-hmm. It's one of the early vocab words you learn because it's so common. And this is not that word. So there's not an one correlation between the word for authority and authentic. So he's given women or wives a limitation. Are wives embarrassing their husbands in public? Are they vetting their prophecies in public and shaming them? Like, is there something in the dynamic of the husband and wife where between the husband and wife where you have a prophesying woman and that creates some problems culturally? You know, all kinds of questions that raises. So he is putting a limit on here yet. And now he seems to be pivoting to say, but here's the good news. Uh, She'll be safe through childbearing. (laughs) And, And he... He's given his argument for why women are to be limited in that for Adam is first and the the woman was the one deceived, uh, you know, but good news, she'll be saved through childbearing. And you're like, if if they basically continue in the faith. And so that's an interesting little phrase because. Yeah, uh, it shifts she, to plural. Yeah, right. It shifts to plural. Yeah. They she will be saved if they. Yeah. Which is bad grammar unless you put, can put quotes around. She will be saved through childbearing, which could very easily be an Artemis saying Hmm. if she's a midwife. We know Paul uses the word, you know, the the structure of something is a saying. He does this a lot. Hmm. And I even think, so the very next line after that saying is, 
this is a faithful saying, which we usually put with the next with the chapter. Next yeah. And then we put a colon. If somebody aspires to be an elder, they aspire to a good thing. But uh, some of your listeners may not know that in the Greek, we don't have paragraph divisions. We don't even have periods. It's all in the same sentence. Think of the last text you got that was missing some spaces and you could still figure out, you know, by the consonants. Um, but I suspect Paul has chosen a local saying and given it a Christian spin. Hmm. And yes, in this context, she's first, but actually in the Genesis context, the man was first and the woman was actually deceived. Nevertheless, got some bad news. Here's the good news. Something good is going to happen. You're going to be spared. This is a faithful saying, which suggests he's borrowing somebody else's understanding it and giving it his own spin, which he does habitually in the past yeah. particular. Yeah, he does do that quite a bit. There. Yeah. Oh, that's really helpful. Yeah, I love love hearing you kind of set that out. And um, that... that um... The the idea of it being a say uh, a slogan that he's quoting and then reframing, I think, is really, really interesting. We know he does that a lot, of course. First uh, Corinthians is a prime example, um, but you you I mean you have people arguing for um, this happening in other places as well. And and part of what makes it tricky is it's not always overtly marked as it is in other places as well. So you have to kind of rely right. on things like interpretation, uh, like you just did with noting the grammar difference shifting from she being delivered to they plural remaining in uh in, in faith so yeah that's a, that's awesome yeah it often cool. gets rendered then women will be saved through childbearing if they continue the faith basically but the idea being trying to smooth out the gram grammary mm-hmm. grammatical shift from singular to plural which again is improper grammar unless you got quotation marks around that in english yeah. they didn't yeah. have quotation marks at all part of the problem here they yeah. didn't have quotation marks. that's right that's right that's right well, that's uh, really wonderful. Uh, thanks so much for that. And that was burning uh, out. <laughs> I love it. Oh, my! I, I know people are going to love this too. It's it, it's a passage. Everybody wants to know more about this passage because it's just so confusing, and um, it's it's helpful to you know have it laid out there. So thank you. Uh, I'd love to, if we could, also just talk maybe a little bit about um, some of your other books as well. You have done some. Books like uh, Vindicating the Vixens, uh, which you put out, um, you edited, and Sanctifying Sexuality. I think, is that the title? Sanctified Sexuality. Yes. Sanctified Sexuality, yeah. uh, Valuing Sex in an Oversexed World. Yeah. Vindicating the Vixens was first. Yeah, both of those are Kriegel academic titles. The uh, Nobody's Mother is a IVP academic title. Vindicating the Vixens was a brainchild of about 10 years of me collecting articles and writers. So I was a magazine editor for what is today DTS, Dallas Seminary East Magazine, but we called it Kindred Spirit at the time. And uh, one that really stood out to me, there was an Arab scholar who's now with the Lord, but he taught at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he did a book on Arabs in the shadow of Israel. And he said, I don't think the way that you are reading Ishmael is a full treatment. I mean, he's called a prince. He's given some great promises. And honestly, I had to go, really? And sure enough, there you have it. And he said, so when he is told you're going to be, we have translated as a donkey and not the very nice translation of the word donkey. Mm. He said, but if you look at what Jesus is writing on his coronation day, it's what Solomon wrote on his coronation day. And it's what, you know, people in the time of, that's the BMW of the Middle East. Mm. 
And I think you should be understanding that as a white stallion, a wild stallion, a free stallion. Your people are never going to be under slavery. And then he applied it and helped it help me see Hagar through totally new eyes. Hmm. Hagar has run away from an abusive mistress that we often give a pass because we identify with Sarah. But God sees her and she names God. Elroy, you're the God who sees. Mm-hmm. She, it's a naming formula, friends. Like, mm-hmm. is, uh, Which some people say means you have authority over. I think this hurts that argument. But anyway, you have this amazing encounter with Hagar who goes back to slavery because God tells her to. But she goes with these incredible promises. Yeah, I'm sending you back. But your son is going to be a free stallion and your people will be free. And you know, the Bedouins have never had anybody reigning over them since. Uh, And that blew my mind as a a new look at Hagar. And then I began to read other writers who were doing something similar with Bathsheba and, you know, the rape story and how we have made that an affair and mutual. And that wrecks what the author's trying to show us through David's downward spiral. He took, he took, he took, he took. You're the man. She's a sheep. She is not, uh, the finger isn't pointed at her. Lynn Kohick looks at the woman at the well and says, why are you saying that she is a loose woman? First of all, that's not how the church has understood her until the Reformation. Second of all, she's not changing the subject. She is looking for Messiah. And Jesus has gone out of his way Mm -hmm. to go to find her and say, have I got good news? I go, Amy, I'm it. He doesn't do that with anybody else. And why have we thought she's a loose woman? Well, because she had six husbands, but number one cause of war, (laughs) of death for men is war. She could be widowed six times. She could be Mm -hmm. dumped. The man you have now is not your own. Doesn't mean she's shacking up with some guy. It could mean that she has to be a concubine so she can eat because she cannot put on her high heels and go get a job. Right. She's depending on a man to eat. Yeah. So all of these, so I have men, women, Americans outside the U.S., complementarians, egalitarians, all of them scholars on these different women, and compiled a book where we relook at the women I think have been wrongly vilified in the Bible. And all of these authors donated their writing and scholarship expertise so that uh, all of the author profits on this book go to benefit the International Justice Mission. It's so cool. We felt like that was an appropriate way to support women who are vilified, sexualized, marginalized yeah. through our scholarship. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah, I've got it here. And I'm, I, it's, a, it's a fantastic book. Um, yeah, I really encourage people to check it out. Um, and would you maybe say a couple things as well about sanctified sexuality? Sanctified sexuality, kind of, sure. Yeah. So that's co-authored with Dr. Gary Barnes, my colleague in the counseling department at DTS. And Our concern for that book was rooted in, if we rewind back to the Supreme Court decision about gay marriage, we were very disturbed about some of how some of our fellow evangelicals were talking about some of the issues in terms of their tone. Mm -hmm. Really deeply offensive, not Mm Christ-like ways of talking about this. And we looked at each other and said, you know what? This is on us. We're training leaders. Mm -hmm. We need a course where... We aren't the experts, but we are bringing in experts on transsexuality, homosexuality, celibacy, uh, uh, rape. And uh, we know who they are. Mark Yarhouse is incredible mm-hmm. with transsexual issues. Wesley Hill has an amazing testimony about being a celibate Christian. So we didn't have to be the experts. We just had to know who the experts were. So we created a course that introduced our students to all of these topics from the people who really knew. And then the book was a result of 
each person in that uh, lineup volunteering to contribute a chapter. Yeah, it's got quite a uh, an array too of topics that are are treated in it. So yeah, that's really cool. And that's all you you that was all from one course at DTS. It was is that all right? one course. Wow, correct. Okay, very cool. Yeah, so we that's don't teach awesome. it; we just curate it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, you know what? That's sometimes what you have to do. I. I was at an all-male Bible faculty at Grand Rapids Seminary, and I wanted to, to offer a course on women in Scripture and in the church. And so I had to bring in a lot of guest speakers because I certainly yeah. didn't want to be a man teaching it, you know, by myself. Woman? Yeah, yeah, no, you're yeah. not her. <laughs> yeah, so bless um, you. So yeah, no, it's you. You have to, and I mean, I think that that's part of the beauty of the body as well, like leaning on each other's gifts, uh, celebrating each oh, other's amen. gifts, uh, doing things collaboratively, scholarship. Biblical scholarship in particular has often been, I think, pretty unchristian in how it operates, competitive and egotistical and individualistic. And um, I think that the more we can work together and, and uh, yeah, just celebrate each other and lean on each other's gifts, the, the better it is, not just for everybody else, but also for ourselves, for those of us that are oh, in this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, imagine what I've learned through interacting with these scholars around the world, men and women, people with expertise in areas where I'm, people are asking me questions and I don't know the answers, but fortunately now I know who I can point them to. Yeah. Good, solid research. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I don't want to take up any more of your time, except to, could you give us maybe okay. just a, a really quick preview of the uh, books you've got, you have under contract with IVP. Yeah. What are you up to? Yeah. So the working title of the next one is A Woman's Places in the Story. And it's revisiting, uh, you know, if you if you preach through Genesis and you're skipping the story of Tamar, uh, you're missing a, you're missing where Judah got his character arc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes the women's stories get pulled out as cameos if they're told, told at all. There's a reason there are so many Marys in the New Testament. They're all named after Miriam. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, she's a prophet. Mm-hmm. You know, she's a leader in Israel. And so it's it's not it's getting away sort of from what we did in Vixens, which I totally stand behind. But that was cameoing. Mm-hmm. Now I'm wanting to help us tell the whole story of scripture, but make sure that we include the women that were included. You know, you've got the four daughters of Zelophehad and their story is told no fewer than three times in the Old Testament. Nobody in my church that I know of knows who those people are. They will when I'm done. Nice. I love it. That's so cool. Thanks. Well, thank you so much again for your time, um, your scholarship. <laughs> it's such a blessing and uh, yeah, fun to connect with you. Um, and I know people are going to love the episode. So fun thanks to, so much. Fun to nerd out. It's fun <laughs> to nerd out. That's what we do here. Thanks. You've just finished another episode of On The Way. Thanks so much for listening to us. We so appreciate it. If you haven't already, make sure that you are following or subscribed to the podcast so that you get the release of each new episode. And we'd very much appreciate if you would write us or rate us on whichever podcast platform you use. That would be awesome. The biggest encouragement I have is for you to consider joining our Facebook group if you haven't already. Link is posted in the episode description. This is a community for all people to just come together, encourage one another in our faith, share resources, and continue on this journey together. Thanks all. We love you.